Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice was written by Thomas Pynchon and published in 2009. And the film adaptation was directed by Paul Thomas Anderson and came out in 2014. And we are excited! (laughs) We get to talk about Thomas Pynchon and... And P.T. Anderson. Although I shouldn't talk, I'm not like a crazy Pynchon fan or anything, but... I feel like as someone who likes books, you kind of have to appreciate people that are almost like cult-like. You know, James Joyce, David Foster Wallace, Thomas Pynchon is in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't really like to read their books, but I'm always like... When I do, I always feel proud of myself. And I'm like, yeah. hey, I read, I read Ulysses. No big deal. Like. <laughs> yeah, I felt uh, proud getting through this book. Not that it was like tough to get through. Yeah. But it's kind of such a uh, weird um, uh, kind of like romp of a book. Yeah. I, it's tough to explain. Mm-hmm. Like it's very dense and kind of weird and trippy and kind of crazy. And, you know, it was a book that was tough to kind of read quickly through. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you mentioned that when you were reading it that you kept having to mm-hmm. sort of like backtrack a bit. Yeah, like if my uh, brain wandered for any second, I was kind of like, wait, what am I? Because there's a lot of detail and description in this book uh-huh. and references to um, like pop culture and music and things like that and like discussions that have kind of no purpose in a way. Yeah. But that's like the meat of the book that's like 80 percent of the book and why you're reading it you know mm-hmm. what i mean so sometimes when you skim it too quickly you're like Wait, missing what the point of it yeah is. exactly mm-hmm. so for this book and movie setup ian read the book and i just watched the movie so we're kind of doing um mm-hmm. something a little different we did this with a walk to remember and big little eyes kind yeah of switching off the reading but so we knew that inherent vice would kind of be a little bit challenging. Um, It's this detective noir story set in L.A. in the 1970s. And it kind of like the plot is just totally out there. Really hard to follow. So we almost kind of wanted to see like, what would it be like for me to just watch the movie without reading the book? Could I follow along? How would it, you know, seem to me to just have just the movie impressions? Yeah, because uh, I, I first I read the book first. I read the book and watched the movie like a few years ago. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I I saw the movie after reading the book, which gives a lot of additional context because the movie is very it's a very accurate movie. Yeah. um, When it can be like they have to cut some parts out and then kind of like abridge those parts in some ways. Because the book is too long. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so having read the book, um. It helped to make some of those connections that maybe the movie kind of uh, skims over yeah. faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was curious whether you would like it or not or would just be lost lost and like not liking it at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's um let's get into it. Mm-hmm. So uh, the story takes place uh, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. 1970 uh, at Gordita Beach, which is a fictional uh, beach, mm-hmm. I believe, in uh, in the novel. But all of LA is like set up, you know, they they talk about uh Venice and uh San Antonio and like all these areas that uh people would probably be familiar with. Yeah. And it's so much of the book is the setting. Yes. Both time and location. Mhm. You uh, really like feel like you're getting a sense of, you know, that cusp 
of the end of the 1960s going into the 70s and also this this place this beach town where um doc the main character lives you know versus all these other places that he goes in la and the, the different flavors of the city so yeah and a, a noir detective story is perfect for kind of getting a feel because mm-hmm. so much of these stories are like the character just kind of going from one place to another to another, meeting yeah. one person and another, another person and mm-hmm. kind of just giving you this smattering of uh, a time and place. So this is kind of a great story type to experience, mm-hmm. you know, this location. Um, and it starts off with the main character, Doc, who is a private investigator in yes. Los Angeles mm-hmm. and kind of a hippie burnout. Yes. And smokes weed all the time. <laughs> Everyone is always like, Doc, you're high, right? And he's like, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe smoked a joint or two. <laughs> and it's interesting because he's uh, he's such a heavy user and smoker that he honestly becomes kind of an unreliable narrator. Yeah. In a lot of ways, because he's kind of got what they say is doper's memory mm-hmm. where he just has a really shitty memory yeah (laughs) which is not good for a private investigator and so he like does drugs but the drug that he does not use is heroin yeah which is like important to the story because there's a lot of heroin users but doc is strictly weed and coke and acid (laughs) yeah the the book has the book talks some somewhat about like these acid trips he's been on and does go on in the book and Uh they are they are out there. They're super goofy, but it's really <laughs> funny. Uh, so the book starts off with him and his old girlfriend, Shasta Faye, mm-hmm. uh, comes into it, it's classic detective story. Like, yeah. he's not in his office, but mm-hmm. essentially, he you know, he's at his home and like this old flame comes back into his life to stir up some trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So she asks him for help and um they, the movie kind of lets you know that, you know, it's been a while since he's seen Shasta and she looks really different. Like she looks all fancy and kind of um, mod, modish, you know, her yeah. clothing. And um, she kind of says that she's with this guy now who's this big hotshot real estate guy. And she's getting herself kind of into this plot that she's feeling over her head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she explains that... Uh, Mickey Wolfman, who's her, the guy she's seeing, the mm-hmm. real estate developer, uh, his wife uh, is planning on putting him in a loony bin. Yeah. In a, as, you know, is what they frequently Getting refer to it as. Getting him committed somehow. Yeah. Whether through legal means or not. Mm-hmm. And the wife has a boyfriend. Yeah. Who is scheming with them. Uh, because Mickey Wolfman has, a, you know, Shasta on the side. So it's this really kind of. And they want Shasta to be involved in the situation. Mm-hmm. But Shasta doesn't know if she wants to be. And so she's kind of it's unclear exactly what she's asking, Doc. Yeah. You know, she's not like, help me get out of it. But she's also kind of like, I don't really want to be in this. Mm-hmm. And then she just sort of takes off and is like, OK. Yeah. And <laughs> Doc is kind of commit he he agrees to help her and mm-hmm. is kind of immediately set into this roller coaster of the wheels are in motion yeah <laughs> do you want to talk about noir now <laughs> yeah um so i i really love modern detective noir stories yeah and so it's interesting because this is kind of why i became interested in the movie at first because mm-hmm. i saw the trailer for this movie and i knew paul thomas anderson was directing it and i was like oh man uh 
a kind of a goofy comedy detective noir story in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then I heard it was a book and I'm like, oh, man, I should buy the book. So I immediately went out and bought it. But I, I love the genre and the tropes of it. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not super well versed in like the classic black and white detective noir stories, but more like kind of the modern uh, it, imaginings of it. Yeah. So I really love um, uh, Brick, Ryan Johnson's Brick. Mm-hmm. Um or Winter's Bone, or Blade Runner's in there. Yeah. Uh, Big Lebowski's probably one of my favorites mm-hmm. that is actually a detective noir story. Uh, and Chinatown, of course. And, you know, L.A. is a big um, kind of recurring theme in a lot of detective stories. Yeah, I heard that actually a lot of people were comparing this movie to The Big Lebowski. Yeah. Or kind of like thought that it would be more like The Big mm-hmm. Lebowski and then watched it and were like, wait, this is not what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, that's kind of what I thought, too, when I first saw the trailer. Yeah, it seems like it had that vibe. Yeah, it's a pot smoking kind mm-hmm. of doofus in over his head in this huge, crazy in L.A. in L.A. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, it's w- way more, um, I don't know, kind of mixed in its uh the feel of it than yeah. just a comedy. Yeah. There's it, a lot going on. Yeah. They really, Tom, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, the director for anyone who's not familiar with him, uh, directed, uh, boogie nights, punch drunk love. There will be blood, mm-hmm. the master. And this is his first kind of comedy since punch drunk love. Yeah. Uh, you know, before this was the master and then there will be blood. And mm-hmm. so he's kind of been on this drama. Yeah. There's really intense kind of drama mm-hmm. uh, kick for a couple for, you know, 10 years now or so. Yeah. And so it was kind of interesting to see him return to a comedic uh, script and everything. But I guess he's wanted to direct a Pynchon novel for a while now. Yeah. So he is a big fan of Thomas Pynchon and he was previously looking at some of his other works Um, One of them, uh, Vineland, I think. But he was like, it's impossible. And filmmakers have kind of said that it's impossible to uh, translate Thomas Pynchon's books to the screen. They were kind (laughs) of like, there's no way we can do it. But um, when once Inherent Vice, the movie rights were being sold, um, Paul Thomas Anderson was like, I have to do it. I have to try. Yeah. And he did. He said like some quote like, if anyone's going to fuck it up, like, I want to be the one that fucks it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he felt like uh, he felt the need to be the one to adapt this. Yeah. Since it was his most adaptable book, apparently, to date. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really cool to talk about, like, this really well-known author and this really well-known director, director. teaming up. Yeah. And kind of this collaboration and what came out of it. Well, what's super interesting, too, is Thomas Pynchon is, like, notoriously reclusive. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's... Hasn't been, like, any photographs of him since, like, the 50s. And, you know, he doesn't talk to journalists or the news or anyone. Just likes his privacy, which is fine. Like, he has a right to that. But it's super interesting to see him work with a director in something as public as a movie. Yeah. Um, to kind of... He, he's involved with it. Or he is was involved at least enough to give his blessing to this film, so... Yeah, there were kind of varying reports on, like, apparently... Joaquin Phoenix kind of said that P.T. Anderson was talking to him a lot and they were working on the script a lot. And then P.T. Anderson kind of said that's not really true. So, yeah. And then Josh Brolin said that um, there was a cameo of Thomas Pynchon in the movie. But then 
the director was like, no, that might not be true. And it's just like, there's a lot of mystery around it. They're kind of just shoveling coal into the fire that is like this Yeah, mystery. the conspiracy about Thomas uh, <laughs> Pynchon. They're like, mm, we don't know. Who knows anything? <laughs> yeah, so back to the story. Um, yeah. Doc, uh, so Doc wants to figure out what's going on with this Mickey Wolfman guy, real estate dude. Mm-hmm. So he heads over to one of his real estate developments. Yes, where he knows he'll be, uh, he wants to kind of like run into him to get to talk to him. Yeah. But he also knows that he's surrounded by, he has a gang kind of. Yeah. Of bodyguards. <laughs> who are neo-Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is bizarre because Mickey Wolfman is apparently Jewish or part Jewish. So yeah. this is kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird ongoing thing. Yeah. A recurring theme in this. But uh, so Doc goes there. And at this real estate development, they kind of have um, some businesses set up yeah. for people to go to. And one of them is a massage parlor. Yeah. And Slash brothel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he goes in there. Uh, he meets uh, two of the girls, um, Jade and Bambi. Mm-hmm. And while he's kind of looking around investigating, in the book, it's interesting. He just kind of has a blackout. Really? Yeah. And <clears throat> he's never positive what happens okay in the movie though uh the audience clearly sees someone knock him out batons him over the head and knocks him out yeah and when he wakes up he's lying next to a dead man which is one of marty wolfman's bodyguards one of the neo-nazi bodyguards mickey wolfman oh did i say marty wolfman god damn it (laughs) i keep saying marty instead of mickey i don't know why we knew this would happen (laughs) i knew this would happen i'm sorry i apologize uh so Mickey Wolfman's bodyguard is dead and Mm -hmm. Mickey Wolfman is missing. Yes. And, you know, it's almost like Doc was framed for this murder a little bit. And there's like police all around and stuff. And so he kind of gets taken in and questioned. Yeah. No one like plants a gun on him or anything, but it's just him being unconscious at the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. And um, in a part before this, uh, a guy comes up to him, meets him in his office and wants him to track down uh, Glenn Charlock, who is... The bodyguard that ends up dead. Yeah. And this is kind of like part of this web that this story starts building. Yes. Is the web. <laughs> the web <laughs> is that, you know, so many characters show up, so yeah. many characters that don't appear again. Yeah, they have um, one scene where they're talking to Doc and they give him information and then they're gone. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes that information matters. A lot of times it doesn't. Yeah. And it just keeps building these all these connections. Yeah. Like this guy that showed up, Tyreek, asked him to find Glenn and then mm-hmm. Glenn's the one who's dead and it's like, what does that mean? What's the connection there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything is tied together and it's a mess. So <laughs> we're going to try to do our best here. Yeah, just so everyone knows, it's going to sound like we probably don't know what we're talking about. But the purpose of the book in so many ways and the movie is to be is to be so uh, almost incomprehensible in terms of like what's going on. Yeah, there's so many connections and it's not that you're it's not that there's a lack of information. There's too much. Yeah. And you're like, which which connections matter? Which ones don't? Mm-hmm. What's the motivation? And you start feeling overwhelmed, kind of like Doc does, too. Yeah. You're like in his position where he's like, what is anything? Like, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does a good job because Doc is clearly overwhelmed and doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. So you as the audience is put in that place. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because Paul Thomas Anderson has said um, specifically about this movie that 
with movies, he's like, he doesn't really care about the plot a whole lot. Yeah. He cares about like characters and character moments and scenes. But in terms of like the overarching plot, he's kind of doesn't doesn't care about it. Yeah. And I think in terms of like a character having an arc or characters interacting and something making sense for them and character development, I can see how that's important in this story. And those little tiny parts don't really make a difference like does everything yeah. fall into place no but like that's life like not everything falls into place yeah and and it works so well especially in a noir detective story because how oftentimes are you like following every detail and thread one and clue leads to another and then to another clue and to another clue you yeah know? it's like that's not how it happens whenever i enjoy a, a detective story i just like the ride i like the yeah. characters and the settings and, mm-hmm. and the individual scenes i don't care about oh he betrayed him and this and that you know, so I, I thought this was really interesting and it was a risky move by, I think, P.T. Anderson to adapt this and kind of really go with that. Yeah. Because I, I do think it turned a lot of people off. I think so, too. The reactions to this movie were pretty mixed. Mm-hmm. A lot of audience members didn't like it and some critics even were sort of mixed about it. Mm-hmm. But um, I think this is the type of movie, though, that is going to last I think so, too. Like, I think it'll develop a following and maybe become like a cult type movie. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. And I think the longer it's around, the more people will uh, know what to expect from it. Yeah. You know, and they're I, not going into it thinking that it's a big Lebowski. Yeah, because when we were going into it, I was able to warn you. Yeah, no, I was like, I'm not going to know what anything is going on. <laughs> I'm just going to like try my best. So, you know, I didn't have all these unrealistic expectations. I didn't think it was going to be like a romantic comedy or I didn't think it was going to be like this adventure story. You know, I knew it was going to be kind of weird and wacky and out there so yeah uh so back to the story when uh doc gets pulled in by the police after this incident Mm -hmm. he we meet uh lieutenant christian bigfoot bjornson (laughs) bigfoot bigfoot as he's known uh Mm -hmm. played by josh brolin yeah and by the way i'm sorry uh joaquin phoenix plays doc uh, Doc in this Mm -hmm. movie and he's amazing i'm sure we'll talk about it more but and josh brolin plays bigfoot Mm mm-hmm and so they have this whole past together where they're kind of frenemies. Yeah. And I really love their dynamic. I in do, this movie. too. It's so fun. They Josh Brolin or uh, uh, Bigfoot is just constantly giving Doc shit about yeah. being a hippie. Mm-hmm. And he, he talks about, you know, I know you might be taking he's like, I know you might have been taking a nap that's so important to the hippie lifestyle. <laughs> like that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Always calling him like a dirty hippie and stuff. But they work together. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, you know, he's questioning Doc at the beginning, but then they let him go because they know that he wasn't really involved. And then throughout the story, Doc keeps giving, you know, Bigfoot a call or Bigfoot will call him or they'll meet up and they'll just talk about what's going on in Doc's case and like what he's you know, discovering and they kind of work together. It's it's really cool dynamic because they are antagonists, but they also are like, okay, but we work together also. Yeah. And you can kind of tell like there's so much push and pull, like anytime they kind of get close to sharing like a real human emotion, they immediately like back off or Mm -hmm. give each other shit again. And it's probably the best dynamic of the whole movie. It it really it's really great. Mm -hmm. So they let him go. And let's talk about Coy, uh, Coy Harlingen. Yes. Who I thought his name was Corey at first because I was <laughs> like, who has the name Coy? 
But not like I'm judging the name Koi. No. But <laughs> well, also like everyone kind of mumbles a lot in this movie. Yeah. And talks kind of quietly I'm sometimes. Like, what, what are they saying? What? What? But <laughs> it, Owen Wilson plays um, Koi. Yeah, and he's great. I yeah. thought he mm-hmm. was such a good casting choice for this. And the way that Doc kind of gets thrown into the story is. Um, a woman calls him up and asks him to come visit because she has a, a case for him. And her name's Hope and she's Koi's wife. And she's telling Doc how um, she found out that her husband was dead, but then she never saw a body. And so how she thinks he's really still alive and there's some kind of conspiracy going on. And she it's so funny because she talks about how <laughs> they used to be heroin users together yeah. and how they they met in like a bathroom stall. And it's just like a very really funny scene um and you know they have a child together now and she's obviously um become clean now but she's really worried about koi and she wants doc to look into his disappearance so doc manages to track down koi Mm -hmm. or koi actually kind of finds doc it's kind of a weird situation and this is another one of those things that adds to like this paranoia of what's going on because koi actually kind of manages to find doc and he's like hey I just want you to check in on my wife and my kid for me. I can't really see them. And Doc's like, yeah, sure. I can check in on them for you. Yeah, I don't know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) So he agrees to do that. But he's talking to Koi. And we basically find out that Koi uh, agreed to become a secret agent in a way. Like like a a spy. spy. Yeah, Yeah, kind of Mm -hmm. a rat. And for this organization that he's kind of very mysterious on yeah where they faked his death for him Mm -hmm. and then they in the book they talk about like the training he got and stuff and then they're kind of implanting him into different groups yeah to kind of spy and become like one of them and report back Mm -hmm. and but it's this really kind of um sad situation because he did it originally because uh, he and his wife were both, you know, th- these drug addicts and they weren't going anywhere. And yeah. he thought this would be like a fresh start mm-hmm. and it'd be better for them to just be apart because they were fueling each other's addiction. Yeah. But now that he's clean and he's out and his wife, Hope, Hope is clean. Yeah. He's like, I really just want to be with them. Yeah. And he's like, but I can't go back to them because I need to protect them because I'm involved in some heavy stuff and with some like crazy people you know so it's this kind of tough situation but Koi like keeps popping up into the story (laughs) so all of these stories are going on like simultaneously like the Mickey Wolfman case you know um him trying to figure out what's going where Shasta is what happened to her and to Mickey yeah and looking into what you know everything with Koi And that one guy that died, like everything is happening at the same time. Yeah. And it's like so many of the plots interweave in certain ways. Yeah. That you're like, what is what's the connection here? I'm like, not even sure. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of adds to this cluster cuss of a uh, of a story. But it's really great for that. Yeah. Like almost not every scene, but there's so many scenes where Doc is like somewhere and he just sees Koi there. (laughs) He's just like. (laughs) <laughs> and they'll just exchange a glance. Yeah. And it happens so much in the book. Really? He'll just like, he's wandering down the street and he hears like saxophone music and he walks into a club and there's Koi playing sax with a band. <laughs> and they have like multiple conversations like throughout the story. They just kind of keep running into each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really interesting in that way. Yeah. And so around this time that he starts meeting Koi, he also kind of finds out about this secret organization called Golden Fang. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people keep telling him to beware the Golden Fang. And he's like, what's the Golden Fang? And 
he kind of figures out that it's some kind of drug distribution gang cartel thing. Well, first it's kind of revealed that it's a boat. It's a boat. Yeah. It's the schooner um, out on the water that kind of comes in at night. Yeah. And like. Does its mysterious doings. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then leaves. (laughs) And so he's like, okay. And then he finds out it's actually importing heroin. Yeah. From the Bermuda Triangle. (laughs) And then um, he finds out that it's a, uh, (laughs) it's an organization of dentists. Yeah. He shows up. Get it? Golden Fang? (laughs) Like. Cavities like, like, and like a filling. Yeah, <laughs> I think. But he shows up at this building that literally looks like a huge golden tooth or uh-huh. a golden pointed fang. And he walks in and it's uh, has dentists in it. It's yeah. like, and this is where he talks to uh, Dr. Uh, Rudy Blatnoid, who is a crazy eccentric dentist. Coke addicted. <laughs> yeah. Teen in love with teenage girls. Who are like clinically insane, like literally like, you know, dentist, unhinged (laughs) dentist. (laughs) And um, but so this is where he finds out that, no, the Golden Fang is actually a syndicate of dentists who got together for tax reasons to like put their money in an offshore account. (laughs) And it's like, okay, what? Okay, what? Huh? And so and then finally uh, he goes to this. um psychiatric yeah. facility rehab place rehab place up north and it's got a uh, a spanish name that i don't remember mm-hmm. but it translates in greek like apparently it's also ancient greek <laughs> it's spanish and greek <laughs> it translates to a uh, golden tooth mm. and so the golden fang is also this rehab clinic yeah and so he kind of makes the connection between like the drugs and then the rehab and then, you know, the dentistry, because Hope, Koi's wife, makes this comment to him when he's talking to her about how she got new teeth because heroin degrades your teeth. Yeah. And so he's like kind of putting together this plot to like get people addicted to heroin and then have them pay to get new teeth and then also like get them into rehab. So it's like this money scheme. Yeah. To kind of trap people. And it's interesting because... uh from what I've read that the golden fang is kind of supposed to just represent capitalism yeah. in general because the book the book put takes place in 1970 mm-hmm. so kind of at this pivoting point of like the free loving yes. hippie 1960s is coming to an end yeah and then this kind of economic capitalist boom mm-hmm. of the 70s and so that's what the golden fang is kind of supposed to represent this kind of like looming ominous kind of presence that's kind of sweeping in and kind of like taking control you Mm -hmm. know taking control of not only like someone falling down this addiction path but then also even their path out of it too so like that contributes to that paranoia feeling of like they're watching you and they know what you're doing and they're controlling everything it's all connected everyone's in on it yeah this scheme and it's super interesting too because around this time was right after the Manson murders and it's kind of this specific time in history obviously we weren't we weren't there but we've (laughs) read and seen things about it um but kind of about people being really suspicious of hippie culture yeah, and sort of kind of more antagonistic toward them because of what happened and sort of like turning the tide against that free love movement and kind of casting that darker shade onto it and people sort of rejecting that a little bit now and especially the police being suspicious 
of hippies and people that are still subscribing to that lifestyle. So there's this paranoia on both sides of like the general public towards hippies and then of like the hippie lifestyle towards Towards like the government government and everything. Mm -hmm. And in the book, uh, the FBI is a factor in this story. They kind of keep showing up. Yeah. There's this group called Vigilant California. Mm -hmm. And you kind of find out they're the ones kind of uh, in charge of Koi in a way, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I said, it gets so complicated. It's not clear in the movie, like, who he's in with, but, Mm -hmm. yeah. And, And then the general police force and... These groups are so interconnected. Mm-hmm. The Golden Fang, the police, the FBI. Yeah. And you're like, who was hiring who and who was working with who? Yeah. And it connects it so much to the point they're like one entity almost. They're yeah. one big machine kind of mm-hmm. that you can't even like pick apart. You know, you can't figure out the the seams of. Yeah. So it's uh, just it's, it's very uh, unique to mm-hmm. this story. And I like it a lot. Yeah. On on the lighter edge, I guess not lighter, but a different edge of things. Um, so, you know, Shasta kind of disappears throughout this. And then um, Doc is kind of looking for her and is trying to find out what happened because she disappeared. Mickey Wolfman disappeared. And, you know, some crazy stuff is going on. And you get the sense like throughout flashbacks and stuff that he's still really in love with her, which is kind of like this sweet story of how they used to be together and they were both like, you know, these really big hippies and Shasta and and him would just like have a good time and like hang out on the beach and smoke weed. And there's this really great scene where they're trying to find (laughs) weed (laughs) and they consult a Ouija board. Yeah. (laughs) And then that leads them to a phone number and then the phone number gives them an address and then they go to the address and of course um, nothing's there. But it's this really cute scene of them where it's raining, they're running down the street, they're trying to find some weed and then they end up just kind of like laughing in the street together in the rain and it's so sweet. Yeah. And it's so sad because you can tell how much Doc misses her. And how much Mm -hmm. he wants them to get back together and how much he's worried about her because she's, you know, totally different than she used to be. She's in this consumerist, rich real estate Mickey Wolfman's pocket now. And he just like wants to make sure she's okay. I think Shasta really represents like also this kind of change from the hippie lifestyle to this kind of consumerist. Mm -hmm. And getting caught up in that. Yeah, because when she first shows up at the beginning of the story, Doc talks about her wearing this very fashionable kind of like mini dress. Yeah. Kind of. Her hair's different. Mm-hmm. And she looked how she swore she'd never look, he put it. Yeah. And so, yeah, but I, I really like their relationship in it, though. And I, mm-hmm. I do love that flashback because I think a lot of times in stories like this. Yeah. They kind of go for the cheesy, silent um, flashback images of them laughing. These kind of close up yeah. shots that. You're like, what does this mean? Yeah. (laughs) This is just them laughing. Okay, it looks happy, (laughs) but it doesn't tell us anything. Yeah. But this kind of gave us a specific backstory and Mm -hmm. kind of told us what their life was like a little bit. Yeah. And I I really liked that aspect of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's still missing, and then he ends up um, tracking down Mickey Wolfman Mm -hmm. in the movie. Yeah. At At that spa, like... What was that? The Golden Fang thing? Yeah, I, yeah. I forget the name of it. it something, sp- <laughs> <laughs> something Spanish and Greek. <laughs> when when someone was telling Doc about this place for the first time in the movie, he's writing in his notepad and she 
gives the the name of it, the Spanish mm-hmm. name, and Doc, uh huh, you know, is writing it down. <laughs> In this shot, the camera shows him writing, and he's literally writing just something Spanish, <laughs> and that's the only note on the entire page. It's he just, just wrote large something Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so he he goes and kind of infiltrates this. Um, uh, rehab facility. Yeah. And he does this a lot in the movie. He'll show up one place and say... In the suit, you know, his hair yeah. is brushed back, so he's he's looking respectable. He kind of wears disguises, and he mm-hmm. says, I'm from such and such, and he's getting a tour of the facility, and he manages to kind of sneak away, mm-hmm. and he notices the FBI yeah. there, mm-hmm. and he finds Mickey Wolfman, and he manages to sneak up to talk to Mickey. Yeah. And... Mickey's kind of in a haze. Yeah. you. He's either like he's had a breakdown or he's like being actively brainwashed in this like rehab clinic, cult <laughs> rehab clinic. There's like all these like ritual type things there too. Um, and he just talks to Doc about how he was like going to give his money away or something and now he's here and you're like, did his wife put him in this place because he was going to give away their money? Like, is it... Her conspiracy yeah. is it the government like who who's orchestrating this? But it plays out a lot differently in the book, right? Yeah. So in the book, there's a whole section where Doc goes to Las Vegas. Mm. Uh, he meets um, this woman who is trying to track down another one of Mickey Wolfman's bodyguards named Puck Beaverton. Mm-hmm. And she thinks he's in Vegas. And so. Doc also needs to go to Vegas. I can't even specifically remember why. (laughs) He wants to find Puck, too, though. So that's part of it. So they Mm -hmm. go to Vegas. And while he's at a casino, he's looking for Puck to meet Puck. And then he runs into Mickey Wolfman. Mm -hmm. And he has all these FBI bodyguards around him. And they're kind of sweeping him away. Hmm. And Doc's just, like, kind of stunned. Like, what? what is Mickey doing here? And the FBI knows where he is Mm because he's been missing this whole time, supposedly. Yeah. And soon after returning from this trip, uh, Mickey reemerges. He kind of shows up again Mm -hmm. in the public eye. Mm -hmm. And so does Shasta around the same time. Yeah. And so that's kind of, and it's similar in the movie after Doc finds him at this clinic Mm -hmm. and has this discussion with him shortly after he kind of reemerges. Yeah. So there's this kind of interesting whole, a lot happens in this Las Vegas part in the book. Yeah. And I liked that part a lot. It was a good part of the book, but I can get why uh, P.T. Anderson maybe wanted to keep it in the L.A. region. Yeah. And it probably seemed at that point like you're already halfway through the story and then you're going to have them like start this road trip, like, you know, take them out of it instead of like starting to wrap up what's happening. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is when uh, Shasta returns. Yeah. In a very, very, very unexpected bizarre way. way. Yeah. And you're like, as I was watching it, I was like, is this real? Like I was, yeah. you know, taking notes because we take notes when we watch the movies. And I was like, Shasta's back? Like question mark? I had a lot of question marks <laughs> in my notes. I was like, what's happening? I don't know. But yeah, I was like, I, I bet this is a, a dream or a hallucination or something. But she's back and she just shows up at Doc's apartment, you know, and it's just like, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> he's and he's kind of stunned, too. But he's like, hey, what's going on this whole time? He's thought, is she on the Golden Fang, the boat? Like, yeah. where is she? Is she safe? Is she alive? Mm-hmm. Is she how is she involved in all of these plots? Because everyone talks about how Shasta's involved and mm-hmm. Shasta's in on like all of this. And then she shows up and she's just sort of like, yeah, I was away. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she's like, I went up north to see pa- my parents or like to see family about stuff. Yeah. And Doc kind of doesn't question it. He's like, OK, that's yeah, super weird. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting because now she looks more like how, how she, she was used to how she used to how she was described to. Mm-hmm. And she's but still acting kind of bizarre. Yeah, she acts super weird. And this leads us to a really extended sexual scene. Yes. It's kind of awkward and uncomfortable. And we should make a weird. jingle for when we have to talk about really long, <laughs> uncomfortable sexual, sex scenes. uncomfortable sex scenes. Yeah. So she like kind of reappears in the shot and she's naked and, you know, she clearly wants to have sex with Doc, but Doc is reluctant, mostly because he wants to find out what's happening yeah. and like what had happened. And, you and know, she's what she's of, even doing. And, and yeah, she's almost kind of using herself to kind of like deflect the conversation yes, to kind of ignore his questions yeah. about what's going on yeah she's like or oh, you could have sex with me we don't have to talk you know and she's sort of like really you know kind of all up on him in a lot of ways and she goes on this whole tangent about when she was with mickey yeah and he used to take her out and force her to wear really short mini dresses yeah and kind of Kind of pimp her out to Yeah, pimp her out to friends and flaunt her around. And And she would have to, like, go with them and kind of, you know... It's very disturbing to hear her talk about it. Because it's this controlling relationship where, you know, she can't say no um, to him or to the guys that he pawns her off on. And she talks, too, about how she kind of liked feeling invisible with him. Yeah. Like he didn't see her or maybe he saw her as more of an object and so kind of treated her like nothing and part of her liked that. And so that kind of ties into maybe like some self-hatred or some, you know, sadistic type, you know. Yeah. Cause wanting to punish herself, maybe. Because as she's telling this to Doc, she's literally crawling over his lap naked yeah. and she's like, you know, wouldn't you just want to like punish the person who broke your heart and ran away with this like yeah millionaire and this is where you know doc like slaps her ass like a bunch of times and then has really aggressive sex with her yeah and it's like it's clearly meant to be kind of this sad and uncomfortable scene yeah you know it's like there's something wrong with Shasta and obviously the stuff that happened to her isn't just gonna go away and she's still feeling the effects of being with this Mickey Wolfman guy and kind of the culture that she was in, which I would argue that this type of culture, you know, treats women as, you know, commodities or objects. Yeah. And we get that a lot in like, there's a, a scene where Doc is at Mickey Wolfman's house and he's not, Mickey Wolfman isn't there because he's missing, but he sees his wife and kind of like they're having this party and everyone's all sexy and they're like, <sighs> sex is happening all the time. We're like, yeah. okay, we get it. But kind of like, <laughs> This culture and this idea and like that the tie between capitalism and misogyny and Hmm. using women, you know, I'm getting like super deep here (laughs) into like capitalist, you know, uh, theory, but tying that to, you know, money and then also using women as objects and Shasta is like just now coming out of that. So part of her is still troubled obviously yeah and you know it's it's um uh the 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 dialogue is almost verbatim from the book yeah the whole scene and so much of the dialogue of this story is verbatim from the book really the opening scene and like 
um, you know, this scene where she's talking about what Mickey used to do to her. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, unique to the movie that it takes this uh speech of hers and keeps the dialogue the same but it just comes across so much more sad in the movie Mm -hmm. i think because of the performance and the music is very uh sad if that makes sense like the, Mm -hmm. the music kind of really adds to this weird um feeling and tone the actress is really good was um is it Catherine Watterson yes Mm -hmm. something water so yeah something like that yeah um but she's really good and she really plays this especially this scene really well yeah yeah so yeah so that is ends and you're just like okay (laughs) (laughs) it was very it's it's just very um for a movie that's relatively it's been goofy at points and yeah. laugh out loud funny at points and very eerie at points. Mm-hmm. But this was the most kind of disturbing or catches you off guard moment in the yeah, movie. Yeah, makes you feel uncomfortable, I think. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Mm-hmm. Because like it's sexual and, you know, it's supposed to be kind of erotic, but at the same time it's like, oh, this is like, this is clearly like not a good thing for her or for him like this is a bad kind of a bad moment in the in the book he specifically describes her as seeming like the old shasta Mm -hmm. so in that context it really does seem like maybe she's just kind of being uh trying to get back to herself maybe yeah Mm -hmm. or kind of role-playing the situation it's definitely more of just a sex thing it seems and this like sad yeah uh, cry for help almost so this kind of kicks us into the third act yeah which the movie does a good job of kind of setting up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't talked about the narrator. Oh, yeah. So it's super interesting because there's this female character who is like a friend of Doc's who narrates the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that her dialogue is from the book. Yeah. So uh, she so this is uh, P.T. Anderson talked about he wanted a narrator because he really wanted to keep a lot of the uh, the lines or the yeah i don't know the term for it not not the dialogue but just the writing the narration from, the narration the writing from the book uh that wasn't dialogue and so he decided to include a narrator and in the book there is this side character named liege who is super into um astrological signs and karma and astrology and mm-hmm. things like that and she becomes the narrator in the movie. Yeah. Which I found very interesting. Yeah. And it's really cool because she's talking about the scenes and the characters and what's going on. And she even appears in some scenes with Doc. But it's like the type of scenes and the type of way that she interacts with him where, in my mind anyway, she's completely imaginary. Yeah. Like she's not a real character in the story. At least not at this point. Because there is a part where... When they did the Ouija board. Yeah. She was there. Yeah. And Doc either mentions her to Shasta. Yeah. Or Shasta mentions Liege. Mm-hmm. So I think Liege is a person. But not in the sense that, because there's some shots of her where she'll be in Doc's car kind of talking and narrating. And then in the next shot, he'll just be alone in the car. Yeah. So you're like, you know, is this his conscience? Is this like, is she kind of serving as his... um Guardian Angel a little bit, you know, in this mm-hmm. story. I don't know. I like it, though. I do, too. I, I like her, her. More of the mystery. Yeah. And her voiceovers and like keeping some of Pynchon's. Yeah. Especially when he's talking about like 
karmic thermals and astrological. Yeah, and the horoscopes. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I really like those parts of the uh, of the narration. Mm-hmm. So the narrator actually kind of helps Doc decide what to do because we talked about earlier how everything is connected. You know, there's so many webs and plots and groups that are like all connected, and it seems like a mess. And Doc cannot sort it out. And so the narrator kind of there's a scene with her and him where she's like, you know, what what couldn't you live with if you like end all this? You know, what's the one thing that you want to fix in this whole situation? And Doc's kind of like, oh, I want to help Koi. Like, I don't care about all this other stuff with Mickey. I don't care. The Golden Fang. The Golden Fang. Like, I don't care. I just want to help Koi. So that gives him this. Um, drive and this drives the whole third act of the movie. Yeah, and I like that kind of decision to yeah. help Koi and kind mm-hmm. of abandon. Now these elements still kind of come up a little bit. Yeah, like the Golden Fang you and can't stuff. Can't escape it. No, <laughs> uh, but I do like that part of it, and it's it helps establish the third act better than like the book does. Yeah, you know? and it gives us purpose in following the story because mm-hmm. we're like, oh yeah, like Koi, yes, let's help Koi. You know, and, and it kind of helps refocus the audience too. Yeah, you're like, this, what like, is happening? Okay, forget kind of everything <laughs> else. Let's just focus on Koi right now. Yeah, so he kind of figures out that when Koi Koi's death was faked, they faked an overdose, and the heroin that was used to fake the overdose he kind of tracks down to this adrian prussia character yeah who's kind of a loan shark and he goes to the um assistant da who he's kind of dating oh yeah in this story who is mm-hmm. played by reese witherspoon mm-hmm. who's great there's She's so great. many there's so many big names in this movie it's I crazy know. yeah benicio del toro is also in it mm-hmm. as a uh uh, a lawyer. Yeah, who, his lawyer friend. Yeah, who helps him out. And so he manages to get the jacket or the uh, case files on Adrian Prussia. Yeah. And kind of finds out he's been like almost like a hitman for the LAPD. Yeah. Where he commits these crimes and they kind of turn their back. Uh-huh. And, and it never goes to court, you know, mm-hmm. and all these um, prosecutions don't really happen. Yeah. And he discovers that he was responsible for killing Bigfoot's partner. Yeah. And this kind of explains a lot to Doc because Bigfoot has kind of been a little erratic and yeah. a little emotional at points that mm-hmm. Doc kind of says is un- unlike him. Yeah. And he hasn't had a partner for a little while now, apparently, but... And wants to work alone now, doesn't want a new partner, probably because he was so traumatized by his partner's death. Yeah, and Doc kind of realizes he's still in mourning a bit, so... He goes just straight to the source. He goes to visit Adrian Prussia. yeah. And he, who's Adrian Prussia? I wrote it down. Adrian Prussia is played by. <laughs> Peter McRobbie. <laughs> the old, old Peter McRobbie. Nice. <laughs> but no, he's the, um, the pastor or the father in uh, the Daredevil TV series. Uh-huh. He's really good in this role. I, I liked him a lot. And. Adrian has this office filled with baseball bats. It's so cool. It's kind of a thing of his. And Doc sits down with him and Adrian kind of brushes off, brushes him off. And then and then Puck Beaverton enters Puck Beaverton, who we only know as the guy with the swastika tattoo on his face. (laughs) And Puck gives him he lights up a joint and gives it to Doc. Yeah. And Doc 
being Doc, like, doesn't even think and takes it and, like, mm-hmm. starts, you know, taking hits off it. And, of course, gets totally drugged and pass out, passes out. <laughs> yeah. And when he comes to, he's, like, handcuffed to this wall and um, Puck Beaverton has him in this room and basically kind of says that he's going to kill him. Yeah. He tells uh, Doc that they just got a shipment of new heroin in. Yeah. Uh, like pure Chinese white, whatever it's called. Uh-huh. And they're going to overdose him. So the same way that they faked Koi's death, they're yeah. going to do the same thing to him. And so he, he leaves and Doc is like, Doc's freaking out, but he manages to pull out a a shiv or not a shiv a uh like a, a, a sliver a, a sliver of a credit card. credit card which he's able to undo his cuffs with yeah and then he grabs uh um what is it like the lid of a toilet yeah the lid of a toilet he grabs a lid of a toilet and then hits puck beaverton over the head when he comes in the door and then they end up in this big fight scene Th- this is what i love about joaquin phoenix yeah he is so he's the most physical actor mm-hmm. especially in like pt anderson movies that i've seen yeah um He's been, he in the master specifically. He gets into a couple of fights, mm-hmm. and I'm like, he's really like getting slapped around in the face by this guy. Or, yeah, it's an intense fight. It is, and uh, that God, I just I love Joaquin Phoenix for that reason. He's so good. Mm-hmm. And, and then he injects the heroin into Puck Beaverton. <laughs> and that the, was meant for him. Yes, it's, it's a great way to finish him off. And then. Right when he does that, the door opens and Adrian Prussia walks in Mm -hmm. and Doc manages to grab the pistol off Buck Puck Beaverton. (laughs) Said Buck for a second. And he shoots Adrian. Yeah. And it leads to my favorite line in the whole movie where after he shoots in uh, Adrian's direction and the door closes again and he can't see Adrian, he kind of he gets up and he's looking and he's all frantic and he. He yells down. He's like, did I get you? (laughs) (laughs) And it's just dead silence because when he gets to the bottom of the steps, Adrian's dead. Yeah. And he gets down there and Bigfoot's there. Yeah. And so so it's like, was Bigfoot setting him up or like, did Bigfoot kind of lead him there so he could get in there? You don't really know. Yeah. This is so Bigfoot is stealing a bunch of the heroin. Yeah. And Doc's telling him it's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And... You know, uh, Bigfoot just kind of brushes him off. Yeah. And Bigfoot drives him to his... Back to his house. Back to his... Well, to his car. Oh, yeah, back to his car. Because they impounded his car. Mm-hmm. And when he lets him off, Doc kind of gets this eerie sense of, like, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And he opens up the trunk and finds uh, Bigfoot had put a bunch of the heroin in his car. Yeah. Like, ten big cubes, like... <laughs> Bundles of heroin. And he's like, oh, shit. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure. What the purpose of that was. Yeah. I don't because I don't think he wanted to set up Doc to be. Maybe he did. Maybe he did want Doc to fall to take to take the fall fall. for everything. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. The book almost alluded to that. I mean, I'm sure it said it more specifically and I just kind of forgot but <laughs> that it was so he could like follow Doc to figure out who hired Adrian because he's still trying to like get the guy who's the most responsible for his partner's death for his partner's death mm-hmm. and uh can we take a, a sidebar real quick yeah and talk about the cinematography in this movie absolutely because well just that shot at the beginning of the ocean between those two buildings. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. And it's just like the city and the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of the cinematography and this is gorgeous. And, you know, 
there's a lot of debate, I think, between filmmakers about whether they use real film mm-hmm. or digital film. And usually it's like you can't freaking tell. Like, yeah. I don't like who cares. It doesn't matter. You can't tell. But this is one of the few movies we're watching. And I'm like, I feel like I can totally tell this was on, on real on film. film. Unless yeah. they did some post thing Editing to it. thing, yeah. But it was actually, I think, filmed on real film. And it's really beautifully shot and like naturally lit mm-hmm. where it doesn't feel like there's any lights set up really yeah. and like mm-hmm. all the natural lighting that's used is like from outside and but I don't I, I sometimes wondered if it fit yeah this aesthetic really yeah because for a movie that's so kind of goofy and heightened and crazy you expect weird, it to seem, be like neon-y a little bit, yeah. And yeah. It, it just, it was so naturalistic mm-hmm. that I was like, I'm not sure if the tone of the cinematography fits with this movie. I kind of liked it. I didn't, yeah. like, I, it's hard for me to explain because I just don't have that experience and that knowledge of cinematography. But I just, I liked the look of it and I liked the feeling that it gave to the yeah. story. Like, I really enjoyed that. Well, and it, it, it's beautifully shot. Like, the cinematography is, I think, inarguably, like, great. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of back and forth. I'm like, well, why can't a movie that's really funny be shot beautifully yeah. like this, you mm-hmm. know? And and it's not that it can't. I was just like, I don't know if I'm getting the right feeling from it or not. I think, ultimately, I do like it. Yeah. I'm not, like, against it, but it's just different. Mm-hmm. Speaking of cinematography, at this point in the movie, we have one of my favorite shots where after Doc finds the heroine, it cuts to him, a shot of him in his kitchen, and he's oh, yeah. flanked on either side by just two huge stacks, like comically huge stacks of like packaged heroin. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just kind of sitting there like, what do I do? Yeah, <laughs> staring into the abyss about it. And he make, ends up making this deal with the Golden Fang heroin organization to kind of trade off the heroin. Um, so he meets with this lawyer guy that he kind of had business with before. Mm-hmm. And they kind of make a deal. And he's like, you know, what do you want in exchange? And Doc's like, I just want Koi to be able to, like, get out of everything he's involved with and go back to his family. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. That's a lot cheaper than what we thought we were going to have to pay for this. <laughs> and he's like, but. I could also have money. And they're like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so this uh, leads to uh, um, Doc picking up Koi mm-hmm. uh, from the uh, the rehab facility where he was undercover yeah. at that point. And he takes him home. Mm-hmm. And this is such a great scene. I it really is. loved this I do scene. Too. Mm-hmm. Um Doc is dropping Koi off at his house. Yeah. And Koi tells him, he's like, you know what what that Native American's saying about you saved my life, so now you're responsible for me. Yeah. And And Doc's just kind of like, oh, that's bullshit, man. Like Some hippie made that up. Yeah. (laughs) But I love his reply. He's like, you saved your own life. Yeah. Now go live it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we get this really, I love the music in it and like the shot it pans out. And then he goes like knocks on the door and you just see him and Hope like hugging. And then you can see them in the window and like, it's just really sweet. It's not like too cheesy, you know, because you don't see them like, oh, and they're kissing and it's sweeping music. But it's just like, you know, it's this new beginning for them. And, you know, they're both clean and -hmm. they have this daughter and, you know. They both wanted to be reunited with each other, and now they are. And Doc kind of feeling like he did something good. Yeah. 
And and it goes back to that that third act point where he decides Koi's what's important. And it, yeah. it is good that we get like this kind of very human resolution resolution to the story yeah. outside of all the crazy drug Wacky FBI craziness. You know, yeah. we get this kind of human resolution at the end, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So following this scene. Yeah. <laughs> We get our favorite scene in the movie. Maybe our favorite scene. Probably our favorite scene. Where Doc is back home. Mm-hmm. He's rolling up some joints. And by the way, if anyone's confused, the reason he's called Bigfoot is he's notorious for kicking notorious for kicking in doors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so who kicks in his door but Bigfoot? <laughs> and he just kicks it like it falls flat down and he mm-hmm. like stomps on it and like breaks all his the glass out of the door. Yeah. And he sits across from Doc. Yeah, and he's just sort of like, why haven't you called me? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, <laughs> pretty much. It's great, though, because it starts off with them saying, um, they, they start repeating the exact same lines at the yeah. same time where they're like, hey, sorry about last night. Wait, why are you sorry? Wait, weird. <laughs> <laughs> like they were, yeah, saying it, jinxing. But it's cool because... Um, They've had like three phone calls up until this point with each other. Yeah. And I didn't know this till I read it, but it makes sense that um, while they're on the phone with each other, they're oftentimes mirroring each other's environment or situation. Mm-hmm. So in one scene, Doc's smoking a joint and he's uh, and Bigfoot's drinking whiskey. Yeah. Or in another scene, uh, Shasta is walking around the apartment while Doc's on the phone and Bigfoot's wife is walking around their home while he's on the phone. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of culminates in this scene where they're literally mirroring or repeating each other's words back to each other yeah yeah and he's just kind of like i thought you would call and i haven't heard from you (laughs) and then he just like takes doc's joint and eats it he 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 takes it he takes a puff of it first and doc's kind of watching in amazement and then he just folds it up and eats Eats it it. (laughs) and then he takes doc's bowl of entire tray of like cut up or ground up weed and just dunks the entire thing into it. He just like upends the tray into his mouth into and his mouth eats all of Doc's weed in front of him. And this is bizarre scene. And like Doc is like staring at him and it's this like these close up shots of each other like on their faces. And Doc starts like crying like some tears are rolling down his face and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> and, and it's funny because it's so bizarre, but you kind of get what, well, I get what Doc's feeling. Doc, yeah. Doc feels bad about Bigfoot and his partner and him being in mourning. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I think Bigfoot is on one level trying to like come down to Doc's level. With yeah. Like, and connect with him a bit. Yeah. By smoking the joint. And then I don't know if he was eating the weed to also do that, but it's ironic because he's just kind of destroying it at the same time. And then it does end on kind of a melancholy note because I think Bigfoot says, you're not my brother. Yeah. And Doc says, but you need a keeper. Mm -hmm. And Bigfoot just kind of wanders, leaves, leaves out of, you know, wanders out of the apartment. And it is kind of this sad kind of unresolved feeling with Bigfoot, but I, that I really liked a lot. Me too. Yeah, and then the last scene is Doc and Shasta kind of driving away in a car together and just sort of talking and just being like, Shasta saying how it feels like it used to feel with them and how it just feels like it's the two of them together. And then that's kind of the end. Yeah, yeah, they're driving through the fog. And it, it's interesting because the book... The setup is like almost the exact same, mm-hmm. but it's only Doc. 
Mm. It's Doc in the car driving through the fog. And it's this really great part of him describing these cars kind of like huddled in lines as they drive through the fog kind of for like uh, to watch out for each other almost. Like they're kind of like a caravan kind of making their way through. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he talks about like not being able to see the exits and if he can't find his exit he'll just keep going and yeah I I really like the way the book ends Mm -hmm. but it does kind of leave his relationship with Shasta more open-ended yeah and this one still kind of is like Mm -hmm. you you know they have this line where they're like this doesn't mean we're back together but it's said with kind of like a wink yeah it's like yeah this doesn't mean we're back together (laughs) you know but yeah and the book has the same line at Mm -hmm. that scene so it's also tough to tell, did she mean that sincerely, or is yeah. it the same thing? Is it kind of with a wink? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's that's the end of the story. Yeah. It was... It was a ride. It was. <laughs> the, the book, I really enjoyed the book. Yeah. And I guess I should just get into which is better. Yeah, I mean, I can't really say because I haven't read the book, but I'm going to say that the movie is better. <laughs> I can't really say, but I'm going to. (laughs) I just, I like, um, from what you've said, um, even just in this conversation about how, you know, the Koi storyline is sort of more resolved and kind of more of an emotional thing for Doc in the movie. And then how the Shasta is a little bit more of a complete story, too. And kind of the the characterization that they give her a little bit that, you know, not everything is happy go lucky with her. Like she's got some stuff going on. Um, yeah, I just liked it and I, and I liked the feel of it and the look of the movie and it, it just, it gave you a feeling and it was something that I thought about even after I had finished watching it. So yeah. I really enjoyed it. I'm really glad you liked it. Cause I did not know <laughs> what I would react. When we were going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. I was not sure whether you were going to like the movie or not. So I'm really glad you did. Yeah. This is tough for me, but I think I might say the book. Really? Yeah. Wow. You know, we're opposites. On this I one. know. Well, I mean, I didn't read the book. You, you so. did not. So <laughs> your, your opinion goes that far, but the, the book is, really really funny it's a really funny book like it's got a lot of stoner humor and it's i really love the writing in it Mm -hmm. um uh, thomas pynchon's descriptions and everything are so kind of vivid and it really helps bring you into this like the setting of the 1970s Mm -hmm. and i just i enjoyed it it does drag at points um, it is a little bit tough at points to get through. Yeah. Sometimes the description gets a little bit too much, and it's a very bizarrely written at points. He he writes in a lot of run-on sentences, kind of. Mm, yeah. And sometimes partway through, you don't even know what you're How reading. How you started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't even know what the point of the sentence is or where it's going, mm-hmm. which, you know, adds to the feel for sure, but does become challenging at points. Yeah. So it does... Lose some points in that regard, I think. Mm-hmm. But overall, I I rarely laugh out loud at books. Yeah. But there were so many moments in this that I was like cracking up at. <laughs> and the tone of the movie is really interesting and I like it. Yeah. But it's also very just super strange between yeah. like the weird paranoia mm-hmm. and... uh kind of the one, you know, the the dramatic Shasta scene. I shouldn't yeah. say dramatic, but the weird Shasta scene. Mm-hmm. And the book is a little more 
even in a way. Yeah. In terms of just being kind of like a fun romp. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, sometimes it does get too much into pop culture. Yeah. He talks a lot about music sometimes, and it's like a little bit too much. And you're like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I found the book really rewarding, and I liked reading it. So I will say the book. Oh, great. Wow. Yeah. Well, I love when we disagree. Did I shock you? <laughs> Are you shocked? No, I'm not shocked. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can understand where you're coming from with that, especially in a book like that where you feel accomplished or a sense of accomplishment when you finish reading that. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing... I mean, you might have mixed feelings about a book, but when you have that sense of accomplishment in reading it, you're always going to be proud of yourself for reading it, and you're going to be have you know positive emotions attached yeah. to the book. I'll feel more po- I'll feel more accomplished if I read another one of his books, like oh yeah, V or something. Gravity's Rainbow. Gravity's Rainbow. Probably <laughs> never, but yeah, I don't know if I want to attempt that either. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that to myself. Yeah. Oh, an interesting theme that um, I wanted to talk about mm. is uh, entropy. And, oh, yeah. Um, so I was reading about Thomas Pynchon, and he writes a lot about entropy, which is kind of the inevitable decline and destruction and disintegration of everything, uh, including the universe. And um, the term inherent vice is basically kind of another term for that. Sort of, um, it's like a legal clause, and also it's sort of like a, a book binding or a, an archivist or preservationist term saying that it's an inherent vice which is like the very thing that creates something is what will also destroy it. Like how eggs will just eventually go rotten, you know, yeah. how paper eventually disintegrates, you know, how everything sort of decays and how you can't really cover that in insurance and from a legal standpoint yeah. because like that's just the natural state of things. And that's kind of a really interesting and common theme in Thomas Pynchon's work. And it is a little bit in this book two and in movie with you know the decline of the 60s and this coming new era but eventually we know reading in 2017 that that era fades as well and so it's just kind of like the decline and renewal of everything well and it's interesting too because the book in a lot of ways is it talks about like the future yeah and in the book there's um a guy he goes to see named fritz i believe Hmm. who uh has this computer set up and it's this kind of archaic old system, but he could like access uh, information from different universities and things. Yeah. And, you know, he talked a lot about like, oh, this is the future, man. Like, mm-hmm. this is where it's all going. And at one point, like right near the end of the book, Doc talks about like, oh, I wonder if in the future every car will have a phone mm-hmm. and every or even a computer in it. And, <laughs> and so it's kind it's of self-aware in that way. Yeah. And so it's interesting, like, you know, talking about inherent vice and the decay of stuff, but also the re the birth of new things, yeah. which we know will eventually decay themselves. Yeah. And so it's kind of the cyclical nature almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lightning round. Lightning round. Lightning round. Okay. So neo-Nazis are a big theme in the book and they keep popping up and in the movie as well. And it's so funny cause it, it's almost like Thomas Pynchon and uh, P.T. Anderson are like subverting Nazi tropes in this. And so they, you know, that we already talked about how the neo-Nazis are guarding a Jewish man and how they're just working with him and kind of working for him. And then also um, one of the neo-Nazis was uh, a good friend of this African-American guy in jail and was actually like they were friends. So that's kind of subverting. And they were doing business. Together. They were doing business together. So he's going to like provide 
guns or something for him. And then there's this other character who is supposed to be bisexual and he's also neo-Nazi. So it's like the things that the Nazis are against, which are like Jews, African-Americans and homosexuals. They're kind of like. It's almost like they have no like. They have no reason to be Nazis. Yeah. (laughs) And there's this really great scene where Doc goes to that um, spa rehab place. And we mentioned it where he's like, does that guy have a swastika tattoo on his face? And he sort of asks the the leader of the spa, and he's like, is that a swastika on that man's face? And the spa guy is like, no, it isn't. Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, it's an ancient Hindu symbol, meaning all is well. And Doc is like, okay. <laughs> and I love the guy's face when he's he's like, no, it isn't, because he's just like kind of sweating. Trying and like, to like play it off like that's not a swastika on the, a guy's face. <laughs> he just looks like a prison thug. It's yeah. so funny. Okay, so this book is so funny, and I really wanted to read part of it just to like convey the humor of it, especially the stoner humor. Yeah. So this was my favorite part, or one of them. Um it's the character played by Benicio del Toro in the movie who uh, is his lawyer friend. Yeah, Sancho, who's his lawyer friend. And in the book, he's constantly getting stoned and calling Doc, especially about TV and commercials that he's <laughs> freaking out about. Um, so he uh, he calls Doc and he says, Charlie, the fucking tuna man. What? It's all supposed to be so innocent, upwardly mobile snob, designer, shades, beret, so desperate to show he's got good taste, except he's also dyslexic, so he gets good taste mixed up with taste good. But it's worse than that. Far, far worse. Charlie really has this, like, like obsessive death wish. Yes, but he wants to be caught, processed, put in a can, but not just any can you dig. It has to be star-kissed, suicidal brand loyalty, man, deep parable of consumer capitalism. They won't be happy with anything <laughs> less than drift-netting us all, chopping us and stacking us on shelves of supermarket America, and subconsciously, the horrible thing is, is we want them to do it. <laughs> Sanch, wow, that's... It's been on my mind, and another thing, why is there chicken of the sea... But no tuna of the farm. Um, Doc actually beginning to think about this. And don't forget, Sancho went on to remind him darkly, that Charles Manson and the Viet Cong are also named Charlie. <laughs> it's a great rant about Starkiss tuna. <laughs> There's so many great, like, kind of just these ranting, like, rat ramblings of people high on weed in this story. It's so funny. So there's this these great parts in the movie um, where Bigfoot is always eating these frozen and chocolate covered bananas. <laughs> so <laughs> there's this great shot of Doc is in the passenger seat of the car with Bigfoot and it's just sideways view of Bigfoot and you can just see him like just his mouth all up on this frozen banana. And just like, there's a part two where he's kind of like, he, he almost like kind of chokes on it. <laughs> it's clearly, it's just like 30 seconds. And you can see in the background, Doc's face, like staring at him, just like, <laughs> what is happening? And it's just obviously, obviously very homosexual kind of <laughs> referring, but it's so funny. <laughs> the moment where he kind of like gags for a he's minute like, on it. <laughs> It's so funny. Oh, my God. Um, There's so many little subplots and moments in this story, like, and so many more in the book that just add to this confusing plot line. Yeah. And one of them is uh, they discover that where the golden fang had been in the water, 
they discover a package, like a box, a steel box deep in the ocean. Uh-huh. And they end up pulling it up and they discover it's full of fake money. <laughs> Different denominations, but in each like monopoly money. <laughs> well, it's like really, really accurate. Oh, okay. Uh, to American money, except it has Richard Nixon's face on it. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because they talk about like this is actually a tactic used by governments when they want to um, disrupt the economy of another country. Huh? They'll actually like produce fake money of that country and like introduce it into their economy like secretly so yeah no, so no one notices and they're paying with it and it's getting like into their uh system of money and it yeah. kind of disrupts their economy <laughs> and so they're like is the golden fang trying to do this to america like what's the purpose of this yeah and the money comes up later but not explained at all and it just it's one example of 50 a plot that goes nowhere yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder pt anderson didn't use it <laughs> i know <laughs> Oh, so there's this other um, character who we mentioned briefly, Penny, who's uh, the assistant district attorney who Doc is kind of sleeping with. And she's so great. She's played by Reese Witherspoon. And she's kind of like this straight laced kind of uptight um, district attorney woman who kind of like is always dissing Doc and is just like mean to him. But then like they sleep together and there's this great <laughs> scene where kind of she comes over. He calls her and asks her to come over and she's like, fine. And then you just see them like they clearly already have sex and you can see her like smoking a joint and they're like just chilling and eating and like her hair is down. She's just like so relaxed and it's so cool to see that side of her. And I just loved her character. Yeah, it's I, I love that duality to her in the book and the movie. That yeah, she kind of has this like wilder side that she likes, likes to spend that time with Doc and kind of mm-hmm. let loose a bit. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So that that wraps up our lightning round. Wraps I think. it up. Yeah. There's so many parts to this book I could mention. And there's parts of the movie that we could mention. There's a million side plots, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good book and a good movie. I think everyone should check out either. Yeah. As long as you know what you're going into when you start watching it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, if you want to follow us on social media, yes. you can follow us on Twitter at Cover 2 Credits. That's the number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're on Facebook. You can email us at CoveredCreditsPod at gmail.com. Yep. And uh, leave us an iTunes review. The reviews are great. Yes. Or leave us a review on whatever service you use to listen to sure. your podcast. Leave us a review on Facebook. Just leave us a review. <laughs> yeah. Even just a star rating. It all helps. Mm-hmm. And uh, that wraps it up for us this episode. Yep. I was a fun time in L.A. in the 1970s with you all. Oh, and we forgot to mention that we will be going to L.A. Oh, yeah. We're about to go to L.A. We'll, so we'll be in L.A. We'll be living that life. When we release this episode. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be firsthand experiencing that area. Mm-hmm. We totally planned it out. Definitely. That <laughs> to we, do it this way. To do it this way. <laughs> no, we didn't. No. <laughs> but it's kind of cool. It got us in the mood to you yeah. know experience L.A. And I'm really excited. It makes me more excited to go. We'll mm-hmm. we'll take photos and probably post them on Twitter and stuff. And yeah. If we have any uh, inherent vice connections, we'll certainly uh, post about about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs>